millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. Well, a moment or two before the new year, I read the dread news uh, that Tony Blair, the war criminal, the man responsible for a million dead people in Iraq, the man who sent extremism pulsing across the whole world, including here in our own country, including in this postal district, SW1. The man who, with his friend, Bill Clinton, paved the way for the economic crash by their grotesque, light touch, deregulation of the banks and the finance houses here in London. The abolition of the Glass-Steagall Act in the US and the light touch of Gordon Brown and Tony Blair brought us all crashing down and we have not recovered fully from it even now. All these years of austerity are because of the peculiar love affair between Tony Blair and Bill Clinton and the finance industry in the city of London. But of course it was his even more peculiar relationship with the next US president, the simian George W. Bush, whose brain he tried to be, but who brought the world almost to destruction, a destruction which continues to pulse around the world and will do as long as the lifespan of the youngest person watching or listening to this show tonight. The entire world has been deformed, defaced, self-harmed by Tony Blair and George W. Bush's invasion and occupation of Iraq, which killed a million people in Iraq, but the dead, you can't stop counting yet. Now, I don't want to say too much more about Tony Blair because time is my enemy and everybody out there knows how I feel about him and how dedicated I am uh, to holding him to account. The only place I want to hear him speak is in the dock at The Hague at the International Criminal Court facing trial for war crimes and for crimes against humanity. I will never give that up. My film, The Killings of Tony Blair, and even my latest film, Killing Kelly, are about him. So I've said almost as much about him as I have time to say this evening. Most of my remarks will have to be aimed 
and I'm genuinely sorry to say, because if you're a regular viewer and listener, you'll already know that I long ago have forsworn uh, the expression of my actual views about monarchy, about the system of honors under the unelected, unaccountable monarchy that we have here in Britain. I forswore it uh, on the basis of my knowledge of the deep respect that the British people have towards the current monarch, Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth. It was always my plan to wait until the demise of Her Majesty the Queen to launch my campaign for a referendum in Britain on our transformation into a democratic republic of a kind suited to a grown-up country many hundreds of years old in the 21st century. I wish her long life, but she's already had a long life, and that question will have to be posed upon her demise. But tonight I find myself in the unusual position of beseeching Her Majesty the Queen to turn back from a disastrous error of judgment which she has made. Now I normally absolve Buckingham Palace for other decisions because I know uh, that they are made for the Queen by the Prime Minister but not this one. The decision to not only elevate the mass murderer, the war criminal, Tony Blair, to a knighthood, but to elevate him to the highest possible rank of knighthood, to make him one of but 24 people wearing garters, sitting around her table, as the most eminent 24 people in the land was a decision made only by Her Majesty the Queen. And in the sea of troubles, being faced by the royal family, Prince William's affairs, Prince Harry's conduct in realms overseas, the alleged crimes of Prince Andrew, the general weirdness of the heir to the throne, Prince Charles and his missus. I simply cannot understand who in Buckingham Palace thought it was a good idea to invite to that select table a man dripping in blood dripping in the blood of a million innocents to invite him to your table, your majesty, suggest to me that you or whoever made this decision in Buckingham Palace must have temporarily at least taken leave of your senses. Did you not see your majesty the millions of your subjects on the streets of Britain against the Iraq war 
in 2003. Millions of them. Even before we knew what we know now, that it was all a pack of lies. Don't you see, Your Majesty, those families of our servicemen who were sent to their deaths or their disfigurement on a lie? Don't you see, Your Majesty, that Tony Blair lied to your parliament, lied to your armed forces, lied to your councillor, Sir John Chilcott, rest in peace, lied even to you, your majesty, must have lied even to you. Do you not see, your majesty, the hundreds of thousands of your subjects who have signed the petition in 36 hours, hundreds of thousands of them, demanding that you rescind this almost insane decision that you have made. And it was you who made it, not Boris Johnson, not Sir Keir Starmer, who welcomed it on behalf of the Labour Party, not the Speaker of the House of Commons. Your Majesty, it was you who made this decision to invite this war criminal, to reward this war criminal with your select company and your order of the garter. None of us will address him as Sir Anthony or Sir Tony. He will always be a war criminal to the majority of people in your realm. How then can you have reached such a decision? That petition must reach one million signatures. We had the million man woman march in London, which gathered in your royal park, your majesty, I know because the minister called me to say that we must call it off because we would damage your grass in your royal park. Can you not see your majesty? the uprising that is underway in this country over this decision that you made? Can't you see it compounds all of the problems of the British monarchy just at a time when you can least afford it? Can't you see that it hastens the day of the end of your family's power in this land? Because if that's the kind of use that your family's power is to be put to, then taken together with all of the other things in your sea of troubles, the monarchy, frankly, does not deserve to outlive your good self. I mean no disrespect or animus towards you. I feel none and I seek to express none. I'm beseeching you, your majesty,
I beseech you to turn back from this disastrous course of action. I beg you, I beg you to turn back from this disastrous course that will bring no good to anyone, least of all you and your monarchy. Did you not see, your majesty, the feelings of the people in your commonwealth, in Africa, in Australia, in Canada, in the Caribbean? Did you not see how people felt about the terrible crime of the invasion and subsequent occupation of Iraq? Do you not see us, your majesty? Do you not hear us, your majesty? I promise you, as long as God gives me breath, I will seek to get a million signatures on that petition. And I ask all of those watching and listening today, not just to sign it, but to bring me 10 other signatories. Let's make this petition as big as that demonstration in Hyde Park on the 15th of February, 2003. Let's make this the biggest petition in history. The parliament site for petitions has refused to accept a petition on this matter. So change.com it is. It's tinyurl.com forward slash stop Sir Blair. Don't do it, your majesty. Don't do it. It's not too late. Think again, your majesty. Turn, turn, turn. As might Ghislaine Maxwell yet. At this rate, they'll be putting her in the Privy Council. Dame Ghislaine, the child sex trafficker, is still being referred to in the British media as a socialite, whatever that means. A socialite who preyed on young, poor girls to lure them like a pied piper into the bed of the filthy pedophile rapist Jeffrey Epstein. A friend of the rich and the powerful, some of them in the royal family. A friend of presidents and kings. A man who was gathering every piece of pornographic evidence he could of the perversions of the high and mighty in the service of sundry intelligence agencies. Well, she's now been found guilty against all of the predictions, all of those who said it could never happen, now await the sentencing of Ghislaine Maxwell, the daughter, of course, of the greatest British thief of the 20th century, the publisher Robert Maxwell. 
the scars from whom I could show you if you'd like to see them. But why did the judge then seal all the papers, just like Dr. David Kelly's post-mortem and other medical and tribunal evidence? Why did that happen, Your Honor, the judge in New York? After all, was Ghislaine Maxwell pimping only for Jeffrey Epstein? Did all these poor girls end up in only one bed, the bed of Epstein? Or were they passed around like playthings between one rich and powerful man and another? I know what I think. I know what most people think. The idea that Ghislaine was pimp only to Epstein is positively preposterous. If she was pimping for him, she was pimping for his friends. And we demand to know who those friends were. We demand to know if our presidents, our kings, our leading politicians, journalists and broadcasters were amongst those feasting on the dripping roast of human flesh procured by the contemptible Miss Maxwell. No socialite, just a pervert who pimped for perverts. Should Tony Blair be a Knighted, be indicted. Get voting now, have your say. And please, in the course of this show tonight, whilst you're watching, whilst you're listening, go to change.com, go to tinyurl.com forward slash stop Sir Blair. I am determined to get the number up to one million signatories to stop this decision tonight. Tony Blair. They don't have knights in Israel, but if they did, my next guest would definitely be a worthy knight. He has to wear a good suit of armor because he is the greatest living Israeli. He is the journalist in Israel. He is the truth teller in Israel. And he is a regular now on our show I'm proud to say. Please welcome Gideon Levy of Haaretz newspaper. Gideon, a happy new year to you. It uh, hasn't started well in your part of the world. Absolutely. And it's such a great honor to be with you, George, again. Thank you, brother. The uh, bombs are flying again. Bring us up to date uh, on that one first, will you? It was uh, yesterday morning when I was jogging in the park at six o'clock in the morning, New Year, when I heard those two uh, strange noises in the sky. It couldn't be a thunders. And then I realized that those were uh, rockets uh, launched from Gaza, which fall in the sea, another way of Gaza to remind its existence another way of Gaza to remind its unbelievable humanitarian problem. 
Yes, uh, uh, these two rockets landed in the sea. From the pictures I've seen, the Israeli retaliation hasn't landed in the sea. No, the Israeli retaliation is always 100 times more cruel, more brutal, but I hope nobody was injured or killed. As far as I know, nobody was injured. And has it, has it stopped for the moment? Yes, absolutely. Let's turn, then, uh, let's turn then, Gideon, to the proximate uh, reason why I asked you to come on the show uh, this uh, early in the new year. Um, I was struck by, I don't know if you're aware, but I spent, I'm one of the few people on the left that spent time underground in apartheid South Africa. Incidentally, every house I slept in, every car I drove in, every dinner I ate was provided by Jewish members of the African National Congress. And the, the leading voice in civil society, in the latter part certainly of the apartheid regime, uh, was Archbishop Desmond Tutu, as you know, passed away at a ripe old age. He was uh, so revered that virtually every obituary of him was was honeyed. Uh, but then I discovered that actually Tutu was being trashed by Israel's greatest supporters, and for all I know, inside Israel itself. What was that all about? How could people who regard themselves as civilized hate Archbishop Tutu, for God's sake? Look, unfortunately, at least the official Israel is judging human beings only along one criteria. Do you support the Israeli occupation or you don't? If you do support the Israeli occupation, you are a friend of Israel, you are a friend of humanity, you are a hero. If you don't support the Israeli occupation, you are an anti-Semite, you are an enemy, you are a traitor. And no matter what are all your other projects, beliefs, thoughts, theories, nothing. It comes all about supporting or not supporting the occupation. And fortunately enough, Desmond Tutu, the late Desmond Tutu, did not support the Israeli occupation like any person of conscience in the world. He described it as apartheid, in fact. How else can you describe it? <laughs> A very good answer. A very good answer. Now, uh, so there were no flags at half-mast uh, for him in Israel. Certainly Israel's uh, loudest mouths in Britain, and I think in the United States, uh, gave uh, the memory of the late uh, Archbishop a good going over, but something tells me history will uh, view Tutu a little more kindly than it might view them, Gideon. And not only history, I think that even today, who are they and who is Desmond Tutu? Who are they and who are those real freedom fighters? I mean, you can, <laughs> I've been a few times to South Africa and when you see what those people were struggling for and how did they struggle for and what did they achieve, those are really uh, 
This is exactly the kind of people that we lack here in Israel, exactly the kind of people that we lack in Israel, including, as you rightly so mentioned in your introduction, including members of the Jewish community in South Africa who were so brave and so devoted to even sacrifice many times even their lives or their health or their security and going to jail and being injured. Where are those figures in Israel? I wish we had even one. We don't even have one. Well, uh, so many of them I worked with, Max and Audrey, Coleman, Ronnie, uh, Kasserls, uh, uh, the great hero, Joe Slovo, the leader of the armed struggle, his wife murdered by apartheid in uh, Mozambique, Ruth First, Albi Sachs, uh, and so many others. I mean, I can't now, I don't have time to adumbrate them all. I, I must have met hundreds in my time underground in South Africa. Uh, frankly, any white person that was in the struggle was overwhelmingly likely to be a Jewish member or supporter of the African National Congress. I pointed out at the Oxford Union, Jews don't have to be with apartheid. Some of the greatest Jews in modern history gave their lives struggling against apartheid. But George, we have to admit that those were the tiny minorities. Because if you look today at the Jewish community in South Africa, as a whole, I mean, you can't generalize, I'm sure there are some, exception, some exceptions, but by and large, they are the greatest supporters of the Israeli occupation, and so are many others. They will condemn any comparison to apartheid, including, by the way, a few of them who were liberals there, who did fight with the, with the ANC, and still they will, part of them, not all of them, obviously, but part of them will say, how can you compare the Israeli occupation to South African apartheid. Some others, more courageous and more genuine, will say you can't compare. The Israeli occupation is so much worse. Yeah, well, Mandela's uh, grandson has said so. I don't know if Tutu went that far, but so many people who've uh, been able to see both forms of apartheid have, uh, have made that, uh, that uh, very point. Um, Finally, and I'm grateful for your time, uh, as always, Gideon. How's the new fella doing? Uh, how could we tell there's a difference now in the prime minister's house? Any, any important differences at all? Unfortunately, not. Not in the issues that both of us, George and I, consider as crucial issues. You see, in the year of 2021, 319 Palestinians paid in their lives. In the same time, only 11 Israelis paid in their life. This proportion by itself tells you the whole story. And who is the terrorist, by the way? The terrorists are those, those 319, not the 11. So when you conclude a year, which was the most bloody year ever since 2014, we say over 300 Palestinians, most of them were not armed. Most of them were either peasants or demonstrators who were struggling for their rights. When you conclude such a year, 
where exactly is the change, where exactly is any kind of horizon for a new dawn, we are very far off it. Gideon Levy, I don't know if you are a religious man. I am, and I pray to God that he preserves you because we certainly need you there uh, on our show and indeed, more importantly, uh, still writing for the Israeli public. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Paul's uh, predictably uh, getting a lot of uh, interest. Should Tony Blair be A, knighted or B, indicted? Uh, 2,000 people already have voted. Uh, on Twitter, it's 6% knighted. Who are these people? Indicted, 94%. On YouTube, knighted, 5%. Indicted, 95%. On Telegram, always the smartest answer on Telegram, you know. Knighted, 1%. Indicted, 99%. I don't know what the percentages would be about the outcome of the Ghislaine Maxwell trial in New York. We have followed this story right from the beginning and usually under the expert tutelage of Kirby Summers, uh, the investigative journalist and author. And of course, it's a pleasure to welcome her back. Uh, first of all, Kirby, don't take this the wrong way, but. Congratulations, because if not for the efforts uh, of, first of all, the victims, uh, but secondly, those that stood up for the victims, then this trial would never have taken place in the first place. That's true. Um, I want to just say Happy New Year, George. Happy New Year. With Ghislaine Maxwell, pretty much in the biggest political scandal since Watergate. Um, and no one really talking about the political implications, I think this is going to be a much better year because she is, at the very least, um, now in a jail cell with rats. And um, but, but I have a lot of information to give you about the, the case, and I want to thank yes, you. Yes, please feel, feel free. The, the floor is yours. Thanks. And, I, I, you know, it has been a two-and-a-half-year effort as you know, you've seen me do it, of tweeting day after day after day after day, of putting books out, of informing the public that um, these people were sex traffickers, that they were trafficking not only children, uh, but you know, women and men and boys who were vulnerable, who were easy to prey upon, who believed uh, false promises, and then who were threatened. Uh, so a Unanimous jury, as you know, has found Glenn Maxwell guilty of five out of six counts of sex trafficking. She she ran in the circles of princes, presidents and heads of states. And now she sits in a rat infested cell where she belongs. The message um, that the attorneys pretty much gave the victims. This is look, this is uh, something to be celebrated, but. I'm sorry, it's not enough because while the attorneys told the victims, hey, just say that the message that was sent in the Glenn Maxwell case is that no one is above the law. That is not true because as we know, she was not just finding men. And by the way, what we discovered in the courtroom is that over $30 million passed from Jeffrey Epstein 
Chugalan Maxwell within the short period of time that she was being looked into. So she wasn't being looked into for her entire role with Jeffrey Epstein, which commenced after Robert Maxwell died in very late 1991 through the 2000s. This period that Ghislaine Maxwell was being looked into was a very narrow, focused from 1994 to 2004. So, oh, nice, sorry, 1997 to 2004. Only four victims. They're not talking about not only Prince Andrew, but Bill Clinton, Donald Trump, Kevin Spacey, Chris Tucker, Bill Gates, and others. They're, they, so what this has actually done is that it has put a stop, right? A stop to the information about, well, who were these uh, trafficked persons uh, gifted to? In some cases, they were a gift. In some cases, they were paid for. It wasn't always just Jeffrey Epstein uh, giving, let's say, someone allegedly like Prince Andrew a gift in, in the form of, in this particular case, Virginia Giuffre, because that's on the record. It, this, this was sometimes, he, you know, he, he ran an upscale prostitution ring of, uh, the minors were, you know, we can't call them prostitutes because that's not what they were, but that's really what he ran. He was a pimp of the highest order, and no, but it's, it's a political scandal. No one's talking about it. And I think it's time we talk about well, the, uh, the biggest cover-up in history. I, I'm determined to do that and did so in my introductory remarks. Uh, the first question is the one you have just alluded to. Uh, are we to believe uh, that of all the hundreds or several scores of girls, if not hundreds, Mm -hmm. uh, that they were all being pimped by Ghislaine Maxwell for one man only, for Epstein only? Or is it not logically far more likely uh, that he was sharing these girls with the rich and powerful friends that he very carefully drew around himself? Well, it's very clear that it's the latter. Mainstream media would like for the world to believe Ghislaine Maxwell was madly in love with Jeffrey Epstein. That's a big lie. And that she would do anything for Jeffrey Epstein. That's a big lie. She was doing it for the money and for the sex. Quite frankly, she was part of the the, the acts of violence and of rape against these uh, trafficked persons. And uh, so, yeah, mainstream media has a narrative that they want to stick to. But in real life, as you and I both know, these men, uh, Donald Trump, Bill Clinton, Prince Andrew, Kevin Spacey, Chris Tucker, Bill Gates, and a long list, including Ehud Barak, and many, many others, were not hanging around Jeffrey Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell because they were the smart people. They were providing them with with sex, bottom line, that's what they were doing. But on the other hand, and you just mentioned it before you brought me on, everything was taped. Everything was taped for the purpose of blackmail. And, and um, I, I've done more poking around and more studying and more talking and more investigative uh, journalism. And the blackmail uh, what you know, the, we have to figure out what was the blackmail used for, right? So the blackmail was used in order to recruit more people 
So they weren't just recruiting. We've only seen one side of the operation. We have seen them recruiting young children who then were taught to recruit other young children, right? So that you, you have a catch-22 situation. So they can't go to anyone to help them. There's really no one to help them anyway, because all the politicians, all the local law enforcement, they're involved. But they were also targeting wealthy uh, uh, politicians that weren't very high up and uh, businessmen who had you know some money and some prestige into then flipping, right? Become an informant. Tell us stuff that we need. So flipping them, that's part of what they were doing as well. And, and But no, you know, the thing is, is, you know, there's only so much that advocates like myself and the others that are putting in a lot of hours can do. Because look, mainstream media, even as early as today, called her a socialite instead of a, a child sex rapist. Yeah, that's happening here on a daily, hourly basis. I don't know if you know that the BBC actually put up for interview Alan Dershowitz without pointing out that he himself has been accused uh, of using these young girls. And there he yes, was sir. on the BBC batting for Ghislaine Maxwell and Prince Andrew. So that was not a surprise to me, and I'll tell you why. Uh, I know you just had on a very nice man who I happen to like and admire from Israel. Yeah. Uh, and, and frankly, I have a lot of um, really good friends in Israel. When Glenn Maxwell initially was thought to be missing, I called them up, and I'm like, "Hey, can you poke around? I, you know, you know, there are nice places to go in Jerusalem." And so I was like, if she's there, she's going to be in these places. But no, they couldn't find her. Uh, but look, this was a Mossad operation. I'm, you know, I, I don't want to uh, and uh, disparage anyone, but this was a Mossad operation. Alan Dershowitz has worked for the Mossad for forever. Um, I know this personally, but also there's a very good example. Um, Glenn Maxwell's sister, Isabel Maxwell, uh, about 10 or 12 years ago, um, Martin Dillon and uh, Gordon Thomas were getting ready to publish the book, Robert Maxwell, Israel Super Spy. Isabel Maxwell was living in San Francisco uh, with, with Al Seckel, who was a bigamist, and really he didn't die. He, he faked a death. But anyway, she gets on an airplane. She goes to Israel. She sits down with the prime minister. I forget who it was at the time. And with the head of the Mossad, and she's trying to get the book not to be released because she doesn't want the information about her father being a spy who was already outed by Seymour Hirsch to get out into the public. So she comes back to the United States. But what happens? Alan Dershowitz, and has you, have you, has, as, as you have seen, uh, and many people have seen, that Alan Dershowitz gets free access to the press whenever he wants. So does Daphne Barak. So do, do Ian and Kevin Maxwell. So does Ghislaine Maxwell. You know, they have this ability. So what does Alan Dershowitz do? He goes and he writes a very lengthy piece uh, destroying the book, saying how horrible it is. And frankly, I'm, I'm very honored right now because that's exactly what they're trying to do to me. So that at the time, uh, these authors, the prestigious authors, 
you know, with awards, just really top-notch uh, investigative journalists were thinking and scratching their heads. Why would a professor from Harvard, Alan Dershowitz, be writing this about us? Well, then years later, they discover, oh, he's connected to Glenn Maxwell. He's connected to Jeffrey Epstein. We get it now. So that, of course, I knew they were going to bring out Alan Dershowitz because he is their conciliary. Um, however, it backfired. It backfired. Yes, it certainly did. Here, the BBC are conducting an inquiry uh, into whose blunder it was to put him up as an impartial witness uh, when, in fact, he, his party pre to the case big time. Uh, it's the sort of BBC inquiry that will probably lead to the people responsible being promoted and their salary enhanced. <laughs> uh, when can we expect sentencing of Maxwell? So I want to explain that to you. Sentencing in New York can take about eight weeks. And uh, the steps are there's a, a pre-sentence report. So there's an investigation of her background. So whether she's been ever arrested, her schooling, um, her, her banking situation, they do, do a thorough investigation of her life. Now, if her life had been someone else's, you know, in the UK, she had been uh, stopped and arrested for a DUI, I believe in the 1990s. I'm trying to remember the year. But also one of my friends uh, lives in the UK, Matthew Steeples. And um, he discovered, because he's been poking around, that in 1994, in one of the, the two homes that uh, Robert Maxwell helped buy for Glenn, uh, that she was running a house of ill repute in 1994. So the yeah. local uh, police were staking out that property for a whole week. And the way they did it was they uh, uh, got access to the property across the way. For one week, they had their men sitting there with binoculars, looking at this stream of women and men going in and out of the house. And guess what? It stopped. Of course, it had to be courtesy of her good friend, Prince Andrew. But anyway, so none of that stuff is going to be looked into, obviously, because with this pre-sentence report, these are not documented crimes, right? She's gotten away with a lot of crimes, but they look into her family history, they look into her employment, and then they develop a guideline, which they then give to the judge, who then determines what's going to happen. This said, she faces if if from the five counts, it's about sixty five years. Wow. If the judge looks at this um, and even gives her a sliver of that, it could be twenty years. So de facto, she's facing a life sentence. However, what happens at this point is that this is when they turn around, and the prosecution says to her hey, this is, we're going to be sending you to jail. This is probably you're going to be in jail for the rest of your life. She just turned 60. So they allow her to do a post-verdict cooperation. At this point, she can decide to give up names, except she's the head. You know, during the, the trial, the people who were um, in Jeffrey Epstein's employ and in her employ described her as the number two person. So Jeffrey Epstein was the number one. He's gone. Glenn Maxwell was 
described as being the number two. So who is she going to give up? She's not going to give up Bill Clinton, who's in it up to his neck and who is very close to Galen. But there's a possibility that the only way out for her is to give up Donald Trump. Donald Trump has been exposed uh, by a couple of writers. Um, let me just find that information for you um, of having. Well, you know, he, not only did he wish her well, but he considered giving her a pardon before he left office. Um, he did not do so on the advice of one of his close um, counsels. And the reason cited was that, well, if he let her go on the federal level, that she would then be pursued on a state level. But she's only got this bargaining chip. So she can decide to say Donald Trump because she has gone on the record to say that she and Jeffrey Epstein had tapes of both Bill Clinton and Donald Trump. Will she turn on Prince Andrew? She may not turn on him, but she has already damaged his case substantially because it has now, the fact that Glenn Maxwell has just been found guilty, five out of six counts of sex trafficking children, the most, the most disgusting thing any human being can do is just to do that to children. Well, that means that Virginia Giuffre's credibility has risen and Prince Andrews has dropped. So why this man is not reaching into his pocket and, and, and writing a check and keeping his dear old mother from this trauma at her advanced age does not, does not make sense. I see him having to write a check and run the other way because this can turn at this point in time while the case that Prince Andrew is facing is a civil lawsuit. And it's a shame that, the, the, that it is the victim Virginia Giuffre, who has to chase Prince Andrew to get the rights issue that, you know, I don't know what the United States pays taxes for. It should be the federal government going after Prince Andrew. And it can turn right now because Glenn Maxwell has heard that Prince Andrew has made statements that, well, he, you know, so what for Glenn? Well, I don't know. She's going to like that because she, as you know, she's a very vain self-centered woman. So if she decides to turn and say, okay, well, I'm going to go ahead and offer myself up to, she can no longer be a witness for, but she can be a witness against. So this can now then turn 180% and Prince Andrew could be facing federal charges. So if I were him, I would pull out a check. How about this for, uh, for uh, a possible uh, scenario? Uh, Maxwell delivers up Donald Trump, who otherwise might be the next president of the United States, delivers evidence uh, about him uh, that uh, either sends him to jail or certainly destroys any prospect of re-election for him, and Joe Biden gives her a pardon. That's possible. You know, they're friends. People don't seem to understand that Joe Biden has known uh, Galen Maxwell for a very long time. One of her closest friends lives in Philadelphia. Joe is from Philadelphia. Uh, so, yeah, uh, look, whatever happens to Galen Maxwell um, is going to happen front facing. So the public will see one thing. If she's put away in jail, she's going to go to a 
a sort of a minimum security jail. I, I just want to just give you some more information before my time runs out. Yes. So, so she can't really be put into sort of um, uh, a, a regular type jail because of her sex offender position, right? So a minimum security facility exclusively is ruled out uh, because she's a sex offender. And so they will kill her if she goes there. So she will go into a low security prison. However, compared to where she is today, a low security prison, it's going to feel like a resort to her because these places have classes and they have places for exercise. Um, but I do want to address, if I may, the the rumor that is going around uh, because of a Trump operative saying that, oh, the the uh, documents have been sealed. That was a rumor that mainstream media took and ran off with it. The, the guy's name is Jack Prosebiak, and he is just uh, someone who used to spread lies for Donald Trump. Um, so. I have looked at the case record. I have had attorneys look at the case record because I knew I was coming on your show today. And no, there's been no further sealing of records. What happened during the court uh, proceedings were that the documents were redacted, heavily redacted. Not everything was shown to the uh, to the uh, people who were sitting in the audience, many of whom were uh, independent media and or someone like Julie K. Brown, who represents mainstream media. Well, but look, the, I, I'm glad yeah. that you brought us up to date on all of that. I hope uh, Maxwell is not surprised by her suicide next week or the week after. I hope that she stays alive to properly suffer for the crimes that she has committed. Uh, should Tony Blair be A, knighted, 6%, B, indicted, 94%, that's on Twitter. On YouTube, 5% say knighted, 95% say indicted. And on Telegram, good old Telegram, 1% say knighted, 99% say indicted. You've still got time to vote on that. Uh, sign the petition now to stop the knighting of Tony Blair. Tinyurl.com forward slash stop Sir Blair. Let me read some uh, social media. Uh, Paul Kitching says, this man, Tony Blair, his crimes are as wicked as any of those that were judged at Nuremberg. To award this man the highest honor is to belittle that judgment and to shame those who bestow it. I'm afraid I'm with Paul on that. Strong words, but I'm with Paul. DJ says the 6% who say he should be knighted, seriously, the guy deserves an indictment from The Hague. Uh, as an old Scottish friend told me, your ass is out the window. <laughs> Attila Desix says Iraq was George Bush's war. Blair just went along with it. <laughs> Don't make me laugh. Call in, actually, yeah. Come on, Attila, are you hard enough? Give me a phone and we'll test that hypothesis, shall we? Uh, RK70 says, hard to believe anyone with a sane mind would answer knighted here. 
The man told this nation to go to war over a lie. And how many died or were displaced? Lock him up. And Jim Connolly says, let's not airbrush from history his work on the Good Friday Agreement. All right, Jim. Right. And Ben Lewis says, knighted, proudly. Jim, dodo, let's not confuse honour with an honour. Tony Blair has only one of these. And Tootsie says, this demon makes Saddam Hussein look like a saint. Even the Iraqis who hated him are nostalgic for the old days. How Chari has stuck by his side all these years is beyond me. I don't know what she first saw in the multi-millionaire Sir Anthony Blair, former Prime Minister of Britain. And Monsieur says that uh, Blair is not fit to walk the same streets as the brave people he sent in. And Ogoto says there's probably a few more options you could add, but it's a family-friendly feed. Indeed, it is. And Dave says a prime minister should not have an automatic right to a knighthood or a lordship, and neither do they, Dave. There is no automatic right to a knighthood or a peerage. And John Wayne says a hundred years from now, they'll be chucking Blair's statue in the Thames in a hundred minutes if they put such a statue up. And Legsby says, indicted, but I would settle for hung, drawn and quartered. C.D. London says, definitely knighted, ridding the UK labour of scum is a knighthood in anyone's book. What does that actually mean, C.D.? Why not give us a call and explain? And ML says it's a truly terrible choice. That odious man has caused widespread pain, destruction, terror, and grief. He's no better than Osama bin Laden. Well, he killed far more people than Osama bin Laden. Think about it. Far, far, infinitely more people than Osama bin Laden. And John Kay says maybe Her Majesty meant Lionel Blair, not the warmonger Tony. I don't care how Her Majesty gets out of this. She could claim it was all uh, an aberration. She'd had a bad night. Somebody forged her name uh, on, the, uh, on the papers, whatever. Just walk it back, ma'am. Now, in this last period, many people have not set eyes on their doctor, myself amongst them. It's... Easy enough to see the doctor's receptionist, but then she acts as if she's guarding Stalag 19 quite often. But we, the audience of Moats, have been able to see a doctor every single week, and not just any doctor, but our own Moats medic and brilliant guide through the coronavirus pandemic, Dr. Ranjit Bra, who comes back in the new year now dr anji happy new year to you welcome back if you're looking for plump lips that last you need to know about juvederm lip fillers 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Happy New Year, George. Lovely to speak to you. Now tell me, um, I predicted here, I feel quite uh, pleased that I did, pleased that it has worked out the way uh, that it seems to be working out. Namely, uh, that the Omicron based on the South African experience, would travel far, uh, but would not kill or hospitalize anything like the number of people that previous variants of the virus have done. So far, uh, that prediction has been vindicated, uh, at least on the face of it. Where do you stand on that? I think that assessment is entirely accurate, George. Um, in terms of traveling far, unquestionably, we've seen a spike, massive spike in positive tests. Um, if you look at the world figures, we had a single day on the 30th of December where we had 2 million people test positive. That was a, that was a first in, in the UK. Uh, on the 30th of, of December, we had 228,000 people test positive. So a huge spike that we've not seen before in terms of positive tests. But of course, the immune landscape, certainly in countries which have access to vaccination, is totally changed. And effectively, what we thought was very dangerous and incorrect at the beginning of the pandemic, which was this strategy of herd immunity, protect the economy, and if a few people die, old people die, so be it, I let it run rampant through the population. Uh, that was very damaging then. Um, but now, in as much as the oldest, most vulnerable portion of the population who experienced the lion's share, 85% of the mortality and morbidity uh, from coronavirus, have essentially been overwhelmingly protected by vaccination. Or those people who haven't had vaccination, a very large percentage of them have had the coronavirus and were the less vulnerable. So actually, you're quite right. There have been far fewer uh, hospitalizations and far fewer deaths. Now, there are an increasing number of people in hospital with coronavirus now, as there would be if we think that more than two, 2 million people, one in 25 of the population, 
have uh, coronavirus, of course, there are going to be some of those in hospital. But what we're seeing with myself and my colleagues, some of our wards uh, are in fact so affected that on the basis that we don't want it to spread, it's deeply affecting our work. But we're not seeing those patients, those vulnerable comorbid patients who were so vulnerable during the first and second waves, we're not seeing them succumb in the same way. Very many of them are testing positive and being asymptomatic. So that what was very, again, profoundly wrong, talking about everyone dying with coronavirus rather than of it at the beginning of the pandemic. Essentially, we're getting to that point now. By excess mortality, we don't seem to be in a period of excess mortality at the moment. If we look at the true global figure for the number of people who are likely to have died as a result of coronavirus during the last two years. It's hard to estimate those figures, but it's, you know, you're probably talking around 15 to 20 million people. So a very substantial number of people. Right now, we are not seeing excess mortality, George. That was my second question to you. What is the excess mortality? Uh, and I'm, I'm uh, happy to hear that it doesn't seem to uh, exist in the way that it did early in the pandemic when it was very clear that we were suffering uh, very much excess uh, mortality. That rules out for the lockdowns then, doesn't it? To my mind, yes. I thought, you know, I, I had a lot of respect for, for um, independent SAGE initially. It does seem to me that as, as uh, epidemiologists there, to an extent, I've become almost obsessed by the numbers and the fact that to stop coronavirus spreading, we should lock down. I think we're in a very different situation now. You know, China was the one, one of the few countries who successfully implemented the zero COVID strategy, who really used testing to isolate people with coronavirus from the population and protect the overwhelming you know, mass of the population from getting coronavirus. We can't, we can't do that now. You know, if two, two million people in the country have coronavirus, everyone's, uh, the vast majority of people, people who want to be vaccinated have been vaccinated, then essentially we're at a stage where actually we must ask ourselves in the near future, what is the further utility of testing? At the moment, we're kind of using it to isolate people, but not very seriously. We're not really isolating um, uh, uh, the, the people from you know, two million of the population are not fully isolated. They're being off work for a little while, but they're continuing essentially uh, in many respects to have contact and the virus is continuing to circulate. We've reached that stage where it has become endemic, um, endemic, but far less harmful. And whereas before I was absolutely against equating this to flu, now with the new landscape, at least a, a 10, a 90% uh, reduction in, in mortality. So it starts to approximate something much more like the flu. And in the, and over the, over the, you know, coming months. I have no doubt that immediately after Christmas and the new year, we'll see even higher numbers. We will see problems with, you know, staff having to isolate because they've tested positive, though they're not necessarily sick. That affects the running of the NHS. Those are real problems. Workforce problems uh, are real. But in terms of this, the sickness and death, we have to ask ourselves, at what stage do we actually stop testing? Do we stop um, you know, uh, um, restricting society at all because of the circulation of coronavirus. And I think that is the question which is going to dominate the next couple of months. Ultimately, I think not leading to lockdown, but rather leading to restriction of uh, a, a lifting and restrictions. But that's slightly contradictory to some of the recent legislation, of course, that was passed uh, by the government. Uh, uh, people unfortunate enough uh, to be watching and listening from Scotland and Wales uh, know, of course, that they have uh, governments, if you can call them governments, in place uh, that are determined to stick to the old script, uh, not least to be different from the script being followed 
in Whitehall and Westminster, but maybe that's for another day. Um, we're running out of testing equipment. Uh, as far as I know, right at this moment, it's practically impossible to get a test at the minute. So I'm not sure how much longer this regime of testing uh, everyone uh, will continue, not least because uh, when told to isolate, even if not sick, the kind of uh, problems in the labor market that are going to be caused uh, is going to be more harmful than, than uh, these people continuing their life as usual, don't you think? I do. I mean, the whole purpose of testing initially was to accurately, you know, find out exactly who had the virus and isolate them from the community. We, we, we totally failed to do that. I think, you know, the Scottish and Welsh legislature, you know, learnt the damaging effects of the delayed decision making when there was a no immunity essentially in the population and coronavirus was spreading like wildfire through the population, precisely the time when, you know, um, uh, herd immunity protecting the economy, I protecting the, the profits of the corporate elite was uppermost in the in the minds of the Conservative Party. And, you know, I think that sooner or later, the Conservative administration, Boris Johnson, will play a price for that. And, you know, the, the, the fact that he flouted his own restrictions, all of the scandal around the party gate really just is indicative of their attitude that there's one rule for the herd, another rule for themselves, the ruling class and the extremely rich. So that I think will come back to bite Boris. I think the other um, legislatures are still thinking that they will get extra brownie points for acting early. But actually, the situation on the ground has totally changed. You can actually feel when, when people now have a positive diagnosis, they don't they're not worried for their health. They're not they're not worried for their loved one's health. They say, oh, I hope you're OK. But overwhelmingly, people are. The number of people who are in ITU is now very small. People are spending much less time in hospital if they're having to go to hospital with coronavirus. They're being discharged um, and, and recovering. So, you know, I think the situation's totally changed. We are coming out of the pandemic. The numbers we've had are, are probably far in excess of the recognized numbers, but that's largely due to the incredible wave that there was in South Asia, still largely uh, un, unrecognized, probably as many as 4 million people. George died in India alone. But that was then, this is now, the pandemic is two years down the line. We failed to isolate and control it because that wasn't the primary concern of our governments. But now having spread through the population and thankfully having found not one, but many uh, vaccines, the main issue still remaining for you know, the end of, of, the, of the pandemic globally is to make sure that vaccination is actually distributed to those countries who need it most. And, and really the, the theme that we've seen coming to light throughout this period has been the dichotomy, the, 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 the different interests between a global corporate elite who want to put their profits first at all time, as epitomized by those who refuse to waive their property rights over the vaccination and refuse to, let, to, to give recognition um, to the first vaccines that were developed, the, the Sputnik vaccine, um, of course, the, the Chinese Sinovac vaccine, uh, and, and therefore have interfered actually with the global response. They haven't treated it primarily as a health problem. They've treated it as an economic and power problem. They've used actually, you know, coronavirus and access to, to funds and access to vaccination to leverage their power and control of governments. And you think of uh, Venezuela, think of uh, Cuba, Cuba who were able to develop their own uh, vaccination, of course. But, but this, we've seen essentially the normal power politics play out through the spectrum of coronavirus. Uh, I think our own working people are heartily fed up of it. They're, they're fed up of the arrogant 
attitude of government. And they're desperate and they're crying out really for change. And, and I think that's epitomized, as you were talking about, by, by the changes in, in the polls that we're seeing. But I think you're right to say that essentially there's been no different thinking. There's been no different plan coming from the Labour government. There's certainly been no real protection of the NHS. We've seen a radical switch towards privatisation of the NHS. That's been ratcheted up that whole agenda throughout this pandemic. And the Labour government have chimed in with that, despite raising their voice apparently against takeover of US health companies in a half-hearted way. There's no real different agenda. And really what this has shown is that, you know, above all, you know, Operation Cygnus back in 2016 predicted entirely the NHS would fall over, that we wouldn't be able to see our GPs, as you're saying, that we wouldn't have access to health services. And that is actually being used to further put pressure, these record waiting lists, unprecedented waiting lists, five, six, seven, expected to become 13 million people trying to access care. All of that's being used to lever people away from the NHS into the, into the corporate sector, into private health care. And actually the bed base, which has been so eroded, will remain eroded. There's no serious political agenda on either side of the house to change that, to reverse the direction to really institute a proper national health service that works for the people. It shouldn't be a question of, can we treat coronavirus or people's other sicknesses? We should have be able to treat all the illness of all our people. There shouldn't be a dichotomy between the economy and the health of the people. You can't have one without the other. And, right, and this so is what we desperately need, George. Well, now that uh, Blair is clearly back in charge of Labour politics, I guess it's back to the future uh, in any case for them leaving a lot of ground clear for those with a radically different point of view. Dr. Ranji, excellent prescription and prognosis for 2022. Thank you, as always, for joining us. Now, things ain't what they used to be. Uh, video didn't kill the radio star. In fact, video itself went out of business. But I am increasingly sure although my next guest will not thank me, I'm sure, for saying so, uh, that the moment has passed from the big screen uh, to the small screen. Like many of you, through the pandemic and over the Christmas New Year uh, hiatus, I have gorged myself on some of the most fabulous, fantastic, huge production values, great acting talent, on television, it never occurred to me once, even if I could have, with five young children, uh, I, it never occurred to me to go to the pictures, as we say, uh, where I come from, go to the cinema, because the cinema is in my television. I can watch Amazon, I can watch Netflix, and I'm going to see product that is better in my view, better written, better acted, better photographed uh, than anything that I'm going to see in the cinema. And I'm not going to get coronavirus. I won't have to sit next to a stranger. Uh, let's see if my next guest agrees. He's Michael McCaffrey. He's the doyen of film critics. He's a regular guest of ours because I admire his stuff so much. So let me take his expert opinion. Michael McCaffrey, Happy New Year, and welcome back on the mother of all talk shows. Happy New Year to you, George. Thank you for having me on, sir. And let me start by just saying, how dare you? How dare you slander cinema like that, sir? You are out of line. 
unbelievable. Okay, make the case. I'm kidding. You're exactly right. Um, <laughs> so this year in particular, I think you're, you're entirely right that cinema has lost its fastball. So in 2020, of course, cinemas were closed uh, for the most part and people just watch TV. And now films are becoming events. And the only type of movie that people will actually go to the cinema to see are those big events. So Spider-Man, the new Spider-Man movie is a perfect example that here's something that is going to be enhanced by going to the theater to see on a big screen. Um, whereas all the movies, you know, that we've loved through the years, you know, whether it be Scorsese films or, or Tarantino films, those movies are disappearing and they're migrating towards, uh, you can just watch them at home. So for example, uh, Spielberg had West Side Story come out this year. Why he made that movie, I have no idea. There was already a perfectly fine West Side Story uh, from 1961. But he makes the movie and nobody goes to see it. And nobody goes to see it because, first of all, older people are going to be the, the audience for that. And they're not going to want to expose themselves to coronavirus. Secondly, they can wait 45 days. And that movie is going to be available in their home to rent through Amazon Prime or on Apple TV or on Netflix. And in the old days, it used to be you had to wait 90 days or 120 days before you could see those movies. So now there's no incentive to risk going to the movies. Plus, there's just not very many good movies that come out. And, and this year in particular was pretty atrocious across the board in, in terms of quality. And for a cinephile like me, that's very unnerving because there is nothing like seeing a film in the theater. Uh, it used to be that theaters had 35 millimeter projectors and it would look different. The sound was amazing. And now every theater has digital projectors, which flattens the visuals, flattens the, the sound. And you're just seeing things bigger. You're not seeing them better. And of course, televisions at home, people have great TVs and they have great sound systems. You don't have to deal with the general public right, who <laughs> are checking their phones or making noise, et cetera, et cetera. You can pause it if you need to go to the bathroom or you want to get something to eat, you won't miss anything. So unfortunately, George, as always, you are correct. Cinema <laughs> is, it's in a, in a spiral now. I don't know if it's a death spiral, but it sure feels like it. And it's very unfortunate for someone like me who, who absolutely loves movies and lives for them, so. Well, look, the last film I went to see uh, was James Bond, and now they've murdered James Bond, and God knows what uh, 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 aberration they're going to conjure forth uh, in his place. He can't be 007. He's been killed. It'll be, uh, we're told, uh, a non-binary or, a, or a, a, a woman identifying as a man or the other way around or one of a multitude of possibilities, but I feel that that franchise uh, will begin to spiral also. I take your point about West Side Story. I am in the catchment audience for that, but I'm waiting to watch it on my rather big television screen with rather good sound system. Uh, you can imagine what my babysitting bill would be uh, with five uh, young children. It's just not worth my while going yeah. uh, to see it at the, at the cinema. But at the same time, 
the television is getting much better. It's not just that the movies are getting less attractive. It's that, I mean, I, for example, uh, watched the whole of uh, the, the Money Heist. If you'd said to me, come out to the cinema and see a Spanish heist movie, I would never in a million years have done it. But yep. I did yep. it on Netflix. And artistically, in every sense, it is a work of high art. If those, anybody out there still hasn't seen it, they really are missing something. So the best talent is migrating, isn't it, to the television, oh, and that's got yeah. to be to Hollywood's disadvantage. Well, without question, the, the talent is, has already migrated to television. There's no longer, you know, for actors in particular, there used to be a stigma that you were a TV actor as opposed mm. to a movie actor. And that's just simply not the case. It hasn't been for quite some time. Um, but directors moving to streaming services is, is another big thing because for a director, number one, you can get more control over your product. Uh, you're not going to be hectored by studio bosses wanting to cut this or add that and this and that. You're going to have more control. And secondly, if you're doing a series, let's say it's a 10-episode series, that's 10 hours that you have to tell that story. Yeah. As opposed to in a feature film, you're lucky. If One you hour, 20 minutes. Half, yeah. You know, and, and, and so just from a creative standpoint, it gives you so much more to work with. And you can go so much deeper into the story, into the complexity of the characters and things like that, which in film you just can't. And of course, the odd thing about that is that as audiences become less tolerant, as their attention spans diminish, they can tolerate a 10 episode show, which is 10 hours, but they can't tolerate a two hour movie. Right. <laughs> but so that's the benefit for creatives going to television and you know, the, the studios understand this and, and they're doing it. Um, Disney's the perfect example. So Disney has all these big, you know, Marvel superhero movies um, that they throw out there and, and generally make good money. But they transition to television, too. So now they have these TV shows that you have to watch to sort of keep up with the storylines in the movies. And they're doing it with Star Wars as well. So you know, they have the new show. The book of Boba Fett just started. So Star Wars fans who are thirsty for uh, any Star Wars stuff can watch this show. And so they understand that the people, their viewing habits are changing radically and very quickly. And of course, COVID had a lot to do with it. And, and COVID seems more like uh, the end than the beginning of that shift. It feels like people just aren't going to go back to the cinema to see things because, you know, you can binge watch a show. You cannot watch you know, if it comes out every week, you can wait till the end and watch it all at once. And you just don't have that sort of opportunity with cinema. And to me, it, it, it's, it's disappointing because there is really nothing like, say, a Scorsese film, seeing Goodfellas in the cinema. It's just one of those experiences where you're like, oh, my goodness, you know, this guy just spent two hours, 20 minutes blowing my mind. And, you know, the, the visuals of it. But again, like I said, even visually, things are not as good in the cinema as they used to be. And that's because uh, all the, the big chains just want to save money. They don't want to use 35 millimeter uh, projectors. They use digital. Everything gets sort of washed out. And it's like watching TV. An even bigger so, TV, yeah. I mean, no, that's exactly. a good example you give. Now, you see, 
Oh, in in the, the money heist, I have watched now, it must be, I don't know how many episodes I've watched, but it, we're talking scores of hours. I have developed an intense interest in the characters. I'll be bereft when it finishes and that I won't, I won't see them again. Ditto Goodfellas. You see, I'd have yeah. liked to watch 10 hours of Goodfellas rather yeah. than two hours. Spread out, the wife and I watch maybe one, maybe two episodes of something per night. And we're looking forward to the next night to watch another yeah. one or two episodes. I would have liked to have done that with Goodfellas, but that form does not allow that. That's true. And, you know, that would be great to see. It's, it's almost like, uh, you know, comparing a painter and a collage artist. You know, they're, they're two different things. So Scorsese is making this two-hour compelling drama. And, you know, if he were to do that in television, um, you know, that would be, if you're, if you're doing multiple seasons, that, that could be 50 or 60 hours of entertainment that he could get into that sort of stuff. Um, so that that is really true. And I think everybody I speak to in, in the industry understands this. They understand that this shift is not going to go back, that, that you know, people and, and the other interesting thing about it is people can work more if you work in television like yeah. that, because, you know, they're not shooting like pilot season, you know, in the spring. It, things come out all the time. And you can work multiple, you, you have to, in many cases, work multiple series over the course of a year in order to make a living. And, you know, that, that just, and plus there's the audience craving for content. So, and there's, there, we have Amazon Prime, we have Netflix, we have HBO Max, we have, you know, Apple TV Plus. All of these streaming services are just craving content because the audience just devours this stuff. They just devour it. And they're throwing money left and right at people to give them stuff to satiate their audience. Well, you and, and I need film, to uh, you and I need to get together and offer them some content. But finally, is it the be. end for the cigar chomping big studio boss, the tyrannical uh, rule of the or reign rather of the studios? That's over now, yeah. Oh, uh, I would say that will never go away. That's, that's, that's just the function of the type of people that Hollywood attracts. And so what you're seeing, Disney, again, a perfect example, they dominate the box office. I think Disney has, you know, like 60% of the, the domestic box office. But now with Disney Plus, they dominate television as well. And so Netflix is the same way. So you're just getting a different type of cigar chomping studio boss. This sort of studio boss is now demanding, you know, uh, diversity and inclusion and sort of pushing a, a, a woke agenda, things like that, but they're just as domineering and they're, and they're just as um, sort of depraved as always. They just cover it up a little bit. <laughs> well, I was hoping you were going to say there'd be no more Harvey Weinsteins, but from what you say, uh, they've just uh, slimmed down uh, a, a little. <laughs> yeah, uh, they've lost weight and they're, <laughs> I think, just better at what they do. They're, those people still exist, trust me. Is the dough the same, the money the same? Um, do you get the same being a, a big actor on Netflix, a big director on Netflix, as you would have got as a cinema actor, director? It's all about your power and your leverage. If you are somebody who has some swagger to you, you're going to get just as much money. 
yeah, the, and you're going to have just as much control and you can get multiple projects that you aren't directly, you, that you're not directing, but maybe you're producing and things like that. So that's why you, you see, um, you, you know, even Christopher Nolan, who was adamant about never wanting to go to a streaming service, he, he was all about cinema. Well, he's going to Netflix because they threw him a bunch of money and said, you can do whatever you want. And he said, great, that's what I'm looking for. And that's going to happen with everybody. And, it, you know, uh, uh, Scorsese's done it. Spielberg has done it. Um, it. All these people who are so adamant about maintaining the cinematic experience, they're going there because, yeah, the money is just as good and the control is even better. Um, and, and, you know, as in cinema, you, there's not that opportunity. Spielberg, a perfect example. Ridley Scott's another example of a, this great director who he had two movies come out this year and they've done nothing. You know, and, and one of them was pretty good and, and it did nothing. It was a hundred million dollar budget. It was the last duel. It's a film I, I enjoyed. It's made $30 million. Oof. And the opportunity for those guys is going away where the studios are not going to bankroll that sort of thing, but you can control it in a streaming setting. So that it can sit there and, and you get, um, you, you can see how many people are watching it can see how many people join and things like that. So I, I think that's just the way of the way of the future. Where did it all go right? Thank you very much indeed, Michael, for joining us. I wish you the very best of years, and I hope that we get to talk many, many times in the course of this year about moving pictures wherever, however you consume them and uh, watch them. The poll has closed. A record number of people have voted. Breaking news on the petition it has reached 300,000 signatures in the last few seconds. 301,000. Let's get it to a million. We're one third nearly of the way there. Let's get it up to a million. 4,600 of you voted in the poll. And I'm afraid that Tony Blair has been indicted. First, the one and only uh, Miss America, Mrs. America, the American icon, my colleague from RT America, Rachel Blevins. Rachel, wonderful to see you again. Happy New Year. Uh, I hope it uh, blesses you personally and in your career, uh, which as I have oft predicted will definitely end in the, uh, on Capitol Hill in one uh, form or another, if I'm any judge. Uh, but speaking of Capitol Hill, um, I noticed uh, that Nancy Pelosi has just bought another $20 million worth of stock. Should we be following her? You know, uh, first and foremost, I do want to say Happy New Year to you too, George, and everyone here at most. You know, it's interesting because we talk so much about Nancy Pelosi and about the move she has made and about what is essentially insider trading, especially yeah. on Capitol Hill. And it's funny because it, the members of Congress, of course, if they're asked about it, the majority of them, there are a few such as Elizabeth Warren and AOC who will say that they think that insider trading should be banned on Capitol Hill. But the majority of them, people like Nancy Pelosi, will say that they're all for it. And it's hilarious to me because she was actually asked about this just a few weeks ago. And her response was that it should be allowed because the United States has a free market. But 
when you look at the U.S. economy, when you look at the members of Congress and the decisions that they make with the knowledge that they have, especially when it comes to those stock purchases, it doesn't really seem that free, does it? When you have insider knowledge, when you have special briefings and you are specifically making trades as a result of that, all of a sudden that freedom really isn't there in the way that they say it is. It's much more them gaming the system. So I would say, yeah, if you, if you think that you're going to take Beth right along with hers, she's not looking at losing any money anytime soon. No, too. that's sure. I mean, the feminists claim that, well, it's her husband that's uh, buying the stock. But here in this country, uh, we have a kind of, um, certainly when it comes to tax matters and so on, we take the view that a husband and wife uh, are profiting uh, corporately from such things. So unless she never tells during her pillow talk with her exceedingly rich <laughs> husband anything that she learned during the day and he's just the oracle who happens to pick the shares that are going up, up, up and up. Uh, we have to assume uh, that she is at least uh, giving him a decent steer. Um, now, uh, staying in, in DC uh, for a minute, uh, how is uh, the administration coping with the plummeting opinion poll ratings? Uh, all these former allies in the liberal media and so on, now they can't seem to stand Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. What's that all about? Yeah, they're not coping too well. And it's interesting to kind of see the season that we're in, because right now you're really seeing this push, especially by Democrats, by the Biden administration, because we are coming up on the one year anniversary of the riots at the U.S. Capitol that occurred on January 6th of last year. And so you're kind of seeing this push to try to bring this back around to try to talk more about it, because they know that Donald Trump isn't done yet. They know that he is coming back. And so as a result of that, it's kind of a great way for them to shift away from what has been the falling poll numbers and what is looking like it's going to be not the best midterm elections that the Democrats have ever had. Because I know we talk a lot about how the Democrats have the majority in the House, the Senate, and the Oval Office. But the reality is that they only have the majority slightly. So if we go into the 2022 midterm elections and the Republicans gain just five additional seats in the House of Representatives, they have the majority. If they gain just a couple of seats in the Senate, they can get the majority. And so we really are looking at razor thin margins right here. And what you're seeing as a result of that is that Democrats are trying to deflect and say, hey, remember what happened on January 6th? Remember how terrible and horrible we told you that these capital riots are. Remember how we didn't focus on the fact that there was a need for enforced police presence and we instead focused on trying to make a bunch of, you know, crazy protesters look as though they were going to really overthrow the U.S. government. They're going to be saying, let's focus on that and make sure that it doesn't happen again, except, of course, their way of making it not happen again is never the actual way that would make sense. Well, unpleasant as those events uh, may have been, particularly for workers that were caught in amongst them uh, through no fault of their own, it pales into insignificance uh, compared to actual coup d'etat 
that the United States government has been responsible for over decades. I mean, they didn't set the parliament on fire like they did in the Ukraine, for example. Uh, they didn't murder the president uh, in the presidential palace like they did to Salvador Allende in Chile. Uh, they didn't drown the country in blood like the United States did in Indonesia and many, many other places. Is that still able to fly the January 6th narrative? Well, that's an excellent point. And I think that the CIA was probably ashamed to watch their own Americans go into the U.S. Capitol and basically just sit there and take selfies. And I mean, whatever else they were doing, it was laughable that the Democrats continue to try to claim that this group of people who, in some cases, we had guards letting them into the U.S. Capitol building, they were seen there walking around. They seem to have no plan whatsoever. And yet, at the same time, you still get this continued media narrative, which is that there is this underlying domestic terrorist, as it were, here in the country that wants to take over the U.S. government, that wants to put someone like Donald Trump back in power. And it's incredibly concerning for those of us who are already questioning the U.S. government, questioning its motives on a number of things. And then you see this continued push to say, hey, we need to take on the domestic terrorists. Well, it didn't go so well when the United States decided that it was going to take on the international terrorists, so to speak, and its so-called war on terror. So there is a lot of concern here about this narrative. But at the same time, I think it is one of those things where it mainly lies in certain segments of the population and certain political parties. And that luckily does not speak for the entirety of the country. The, uh, the uh, moving to New York, the trial ended. A verdict was eventually reached, and to the surprise of many, it was a unanimous verdict of guilty on uh, the sex trafficker Maxwell, uh, erstwhile of this parish, uh, but for the next uh, indeterminate so far number of years, uh, going to be uh, kept at the U.S. taxpayer's expense behind bars. Uh, did the verdict come as a surprise uh, in in the circles that you work in? You know, it wasn't fully a surprise. It was interesting because I know the last time we talked, I was a little bit cynical about this. And I will say I still am, even though we got that guilty verdict, mainly just because this was a trial where we didn't get to hear from Ghislaine herself. We only got to hear from four victims when we know that there are far, far many more who would be able to speak to this. And so I think that there's a lot about the entire Jeffrey Epstein saga that still remains kind of covered up. And whenever it came to the Glenn Maxwell trial, that was one of those things where you saw really a frustration building online with the lack of media coverage surrounding it, the lack of people who were talking about it. And so the hope is going to be that maybe now she will decide to name some names. I mean, she is looking at spending the rest of her life in prison. So the question then becomes, 
is she actually going to speak up and is she going to realize that, you know, she's looking at two different ends here and one of those ends could be with her actually talking and telling the world the truth about what she went through now that she's looking at a continued guilty verdict, whereas before we continued to see this media push to try to, you know, posture her as Jeffrey Epstein's poor girlfriend to try to feel sorry for her. Well, people aren't feeling sorry for her anymore, especially with this verdict in place. Well, uh, uh, another option is uh, to tell part of the truth or what one will claim to be part of the truth. Let me run past you what I ran past Kirby Summers. It's very obvious uh, that Bill Clinton, especially, but also Hillary Clinton, had what now can only be described as an obscene closeness to uh, Jeffrey Epstein, the, the child rapist, uh, but to a slightly lesser extent, but still discernible, so did Donald Trump. What if Maxwell now tries to put Trump in the frame and the quid pro quo being, after a decent period, uh, a pardon from Joe Biden or Kamala Harris? That's actually a really interesting idea there. That's one I haven't thought of. And, you know, that, that could be plausible. At this point, I think just about anything could be plausible. Now, as far as Joe Biden actually pardoning someone like Elaine Maxwell, I mean, I, I guess that would be just fitting at the end of all of this. But then at the same time, would be one of those things that we could see come up more and more, especially as the election approaches. And, you know, it's interesting because what we've heard from the victims has specifically been, they've said, yes, Donald Trump was a close friend of Jeffrey Epstein, but we haven't heard nearly the same claims as we have from the victims who have talked about people like Bill Clinton being much more involved with the abuse, people like Prince Andrew, Andrew, that sort of thing. And so I could definitely see a case where the narrative is kind of spun around to say, hey, let's not talk about all of these other people who are involved in this circle. Let's just look at a few select people that fits our narrative. And you know that the media will actually run with that and they will actually talk about that because, of course, even now, Donald Trump is still one of their favorite people, and he is still one of the people who brings in ratings like no other. Well, remember, you heard it here first. Uh, finally, and I'm grateful for your time, Rachel, um, Andrew, Prince Andrew, uh, is in court, or rather his lawyers are, on Tuesday. They're still trying uh, to get this case thrown out. They failed on the first attempt to try and get it uh, ruled out on the basis that uh, the accuser uh, lives in Australia and not in the United States, even though she has a house in the United States and has residency there. So they failed on that, but they're going to try again on Tuesday. Uh, is anyone paying attention to the Prince Andrew story in the United States? You know, it's not getting nearly as much attention as it should. And I think that also brings up another important point here, which was that the accusers that we did hear from during the Glenn Maxwell trial, there were so many of them that were missing. And so I would really hope that there would be much more of a spotlight put on this upcoming trial, especially if we actually get to hear from Prince Andrew, because he has been one of the most guarded people in all of this. 
And you literally have someone like Virginia Group Ray standing there saying, here are the photos. Here is what I went through. Here is my testimony. This should be a massive scandal that receives international coverage. And yet there's really not that much talk about the fact that you've got a trial upcoming that he may actually have to face. And so I think that it brings it back around to well, that's right. how important it, it, it is that people pay attention to shows like yours where you're actually talking about it and giving it some spotlight. Mine and yours. Thank you very much, Rachel Blevins, American icon. Thanks always for joining us. Will Ghislaine Maxwell ever leave prison? A, never. B, on a gurney. 40% say never. 60% say on a gurney which for uh, those that don't know what a gurney is, which was most of the people through the glass, all the clever people there, it's uh, the kind of conveyance... He's forgotten Steve Norris. Jeffrey he's Epstein one of our most popular guests, even though he's a conservative. Not just any conservative. He sat with me in the British Parliament for many years as a Tory MP. He was even a Tory minister and twice the Tory candidate for mayor. He'd have been a better mayor than the Tory that actually did win it in the end, won Boris Johnson. Uh, but it's always a pleasure to disagree with him. And I'm sure we shall on one or two points now. Uh, Steve Norris, welcome and Happy New Year to you, my friend. I just wanted to make the case that with today's opinion polls showing the Tories now 19 points behind Labour, and Labour led by a block of wood in the red wall seats that I think Boris Johnson's number's up. I know uh, that you have doubted that before. Do you still doubt it? Well, um, one thing you and I know, having been in the UK Parliament, uh, both of us for a long time, is that in midterm, governments lose by-elections. And so far, uh, the Conservatives have lost two, uh, both in very safe Conservative seats, so, you know, decidedly against uh, the run of play, so to speak, but on their own, not fatal. Uh, you and I know that Mrs Thatcher, for example, was 15 points behind Labour between 1979 and 83, and she won, I think, a majority of 147. George, you probably remember that. Yeah. So don't we don't need to take too much notice of by-elections. I think what is interesting, however, is that in the so-called red wall seats, those are the seats that were won by the Conservatives in 2019, um, some of which have not been Conservative in 100 years. Um, there is now, I think, a growing concern that uh, Boris Johnson may not be the person that will ever allow them to keep those seats. Now, you know, one thing about the Conservative Party is that when the party senses that your time is up, uh, then unlike Labour, ironically, who are soft as a brush on all of this, um, we just simply change the leader. Um, there is one person you and I remember who was defenestrated by the party in 1990, 
who is an incomparably better person, both in terms of delivery, tenure, integrity, and on so many other in so many other cases than the current incumbent of 10 Downing Street. And that, of course, is Margaret Thatcher. But in 1990, the party perceived her as being more of a liability than an asset, and she was gone. Uh, some people in the party, I think, have never forgiven us for that. But it's a fact of life that the party's MPs simply thought that with the current incumbent as she was, they would lose the forthcoming election. Now, that's the challenge to Johnson. Whether the parties, so-called in Downing Street, looked a pretty miserable party to me, but whether the parties are particularly relevant, I don't know. But it kind of builds a sense that don't you get anything right? Boris, you know, isn't there something you can do that's, um, you know, that, that we approve of? But here's one little thought, George, just, uh, and I know, you know, one of the reasons you and I do get on is because we may come from different political perspectives, but uh, there's a great deal that you can't argue with in politics. Right now, the appalling Mark Drakeford, uh, who leads uh, the Welsh government and Jimmy Cranky in Scotland um, have both decided to lock down their countries in the most miserable way. Uh, Mrs. Sturgeon has just um, you know, cancelled Hogmanay for the second year in succession. Nothing seems to be open in Wales where more than two people might gather together. And Boris took the view that actually, let's just do nothing. And it looks as if he might be right and they have given him the privilege of showing that they were wrong. Now, I ask you, uh, not necessarily from the perspective of your own party, but just um, you know, with the objectivity I know you bring to these things. I think that could change a lot. It wouldn't take much to you know, perhaps bring Boris back into the fold. What do you think? I agree. Uh, I think he made the right call, that they made the wrong call. Uh, I don't know if he listens to the show, but I called on him the week before to make the call that he did, and he did do it. And he was right to do so. And that will certainly mitigate uh, any damage that is currently uh, or had previously been done. But here's the rub, Steve, that in a way... The Conservatives are vulnerable to a pincer. Uh, the Liberal Democrats intend to paint uh, the blue wall gold, and the red wall looks a little less secure uh, than it might have done. It was Boris that won those seats. I think no other Tory since Thatcher could have, would have won them. But at the same time, it's looking, according to the polling today, uh, that those same seats that gave them the big majority are now vulnerable to a distinctly undistinguished Labour Party. Yeah, uh, and I think that is a vulnerability. You know, I uh, rather unusually don't believe that Boris Johnson won those red wall seats. I think it was Jeremy Corbyn who won those red wall seats for... Uh, the Conservatives for two reasons. One, because um, you know, whatever your view of Jeremy may be, it's very clear that millions of traditional Labour voters uh, support the monarchy, uh, support the armed services, 
don't like people running the country down, didn't like the colour of his jib, didn't like some of his friends. And, you know, added to that, of course, this is where the big majority of local authority areas and constituencies voted leave in the 2016 uh, referendum on EU membership. And it, they, of course, uh, were faced with the arch remainer, uh, one Keir Starmer. Uh, who not only so, told them effectively that they were wrong, but actually told them he wanted to ask them the question a second time so that this time they could get it right. So I've always believed that this myth that Boris Johnson actually won the red wall seats for the Tories is just that. It's a myth. And what you have to ask yourself is not whether Boris being changed might somehow bring those seats back to the Tories. It's whether there's enough that the Tory government is doing between 2019 and the next election. I think that election could be this year. It'll certainly be next uh, to perhaps persuade some of those people it's worthwhile trying the Tories again. And I think the jury has to be out on that. Finally, are you surprised that Her Majesty inviting uh, Sir Tony Blair, as he will be, into our inner sanctum? Well, I was surprised, but I, I, funny enough, a friend of mine said, oh, Tony Blair's got a knighthood. And I said, no, he'll have got the KG. Now, you know, lots of your listeners and, and viewers, because I know they're all around the world, will be saying, what on earth is he talking about? You know, uh, what? Well, uh, a KBE would be a knight of the uh, most honorable order of the British Empire. Sounds great, slightly ludicrous, but there we go. Um, a KCMG would be a knight commander of the order of St. Michael and St. George. We've got one of those too. And if he'd got either of those, I'd have been astonished. But the reason he got it has nothing to do with Blair himself. Uh, the sovereign, is the sole arbiter of membership of the Order of the Garter. He is now a knight of the most honorable order of the Garter. You know, this, this really is a, a strange country when it comes to honors and you and I have both managed to survive without bothering the Lord Chamberlain in that respect. And I don't think I ever will. But the, the technical answer is this, it's awarded to prime ministers who have served Her Majesty. And Blair was the block. You get rid of Blair, and then you open up the potential of the Order of Garter, the number of members of the Order of Garter incidentally limited to Messrs. Brown, Cameron, May, and God help us, even Johnson. Yeah. So that's why it was done. I, I reckon Tony Blair knew perfectly well what the reaction would be. But when his sovereign told him, uh, Mr. Blair, I am now admitting you to the order. He wouldn't have had much choice. He was basically bed blocking. So, you know, yeah, I think it's quite amusing to see the reaction and frankly, unsurprising. But uh, the his supreme irony is that this has been visited on him by our sovereign lady, Queen Elizabeth. The sword might slip, of course, on the day. Uh, thank you uh, very much, <laughs> Steve Norris who does not have any letters after his name, except uh, academic ones, I should say, a very distinguished uh, academic uh, man from Oxford and a great uh, classical pianist. I had the benefit of hearing him play very beautifully 
in a breeze block hotel in Pristina in Kosovo at a time when nobody knew whether a Kosovan was something you ate, drove or drank. Now he's from Liverpool, uh, Steve, and so will I be in Liverpool in March uh, to show the Killing Kelly film. We've got the details there. I think there it is. It's in uh, Hope Street Theatre. It's not big enough for me. Ah, there it is, the Hope Street Theatre. It's Monday the 28th of March at 7pm. So it's from Ticket Quarter. Uh, it's very, very limited uh, seats, only 100 uh, seats. So if you are intending on coming, you better act quickly, please. Uh, ticketquarter.co.uk slash online slash killing hyphen Kelly. Now, uh, the poll, uh, will Ghislaine Maxwell ever leave prison? On Twitter, never, say 39% of you. On a gurney, i.e. Uh, uh, with your feet dragging, uh, 61%. That's up one, actually. Uh, that's on uh, Twitter. On uh, YouTube, 34% say never, 66 on a gurney, and in Telegram, Let's 34, never, and Here's 66. In Acton, go ahead, exactly. Kenny. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, George. I just wanted to say thank you for including me in the last last week's uh, show where you looked over the best parts of the... Yes, well, you've been, re you've been was, a revelation. I was very moved you've and be, you've uh, become a cult. You've become a cult figure. Ple <laughs> Cult, I said. Well, I'd, ju I'd just like to say to you and all the listeners as well, I think 2022 is going to be a really good year. It's when things will get back to normal and people's lives will improve and people will go back on holidays again and be reunited with their loved ones in different countries across the world. I, and, feel, uh, that. Like I, I feel that, but I also feel a song coming on. Yeah, I'd like to sing a song about that. Yeah, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Okay, here we go. There must be lights burning brighter somewhere. Got to be birds flying higher in a sky more blue. If I can dream of a better land. Where all my brothers walk hand in hand, tell me why, oh why, oh why can't my dream come true? Oh why, there must be peace and understanding sometimes. Strong winds of promise that will blow away the doubt and fear. If I can dream of a warmer sun, where hope keeps shining on everyone, tell me why, oh why, oh why won't that sun appear? Very beautiful, Kenny, very, very beautiful. Thank you Thank very you. much for bringing the New Year show uh, to an end. Uh, we weren't able to have the Christmas event that we wanted to have, so uh, a little later, when it's safe to do so, I'm going to organize my dear friend uh, Shen 
uh, will be the chief organizer of it, a convention, a whole day in a hotel. You can either stay over or not. It's up to you and at your own expense, but we'll pay for the day. Uh, the day will consist of speakers, uh, best bits, uh, and so on, and we'll film it all. And that will give us, in the can, a special edition of the mother of all talk shows, uh, which uh, when uh, our uh, broadcast date clashes with important holidays, as next year it will, uh, Christmas Day will be a Sunday, New Year's Day will be a Sunday. It's not going to be possible to get guests uh, or workers uh, for the most part on those two days. So we'll, we'll have in the can the mother of all talk shows convention. Uh, and there'll be all kinds of attractions. So uh, if you're interested in that, I know you're not going to fly from Western Australia, uh, but if you are within striking distance, uh, of Britain uh, on that day. We'd be very, very happy to see you. Now, most people think uh, that Ghislaine Maxwell will leave the prison dead and soon. Uh, but those that don't think she'll spend the rest of her life in prison. Either ways, it's very, very bad news for the latest of the Maxwell crime family. It's been marvellous for me. I hope it was for you. It was a very tough 2021. I happen to agree with Kenny uh, that it will be a much better 2022. So uh, if you enjoyed the show, come back next week at the same time, same place, and bring another viewer or listener with you. And don't forget, if you're in striking distance of the great city of Liverpool, get your tickets from Ticket Quarter for my Killing Kelly film show that night. A good night and a happy new year. We asked you to help the podcast reach the magic number of 100 countries. I'm unusually proud of this, as you may be able to tell. And you answered the call. South Korea and Moldova took us over the hill with the Moats podcast now downloaded in 101 countries. Little old us in 101 countries. So if you're not already listening to this genuinely worldwide sensation, then please subscribe so you can listen to Moats anywhere, anytime from every corner of the earth. It's the distilled version of this show, shorn of all the peripheral material, just pure moats, 90 minutes instead of three hours. So if you do it and you love it, please give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. And if you're a Spotify user, please follow us and let us see when the next record broken will be. 
Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.